0: Hi, it's uh, M. Joseph Shepard once again. Thank you for uh, tuning in. And um, I'm M.J.S., all capitals, at Twitter and at a point-of-view blog. And this is uh, M. Joseph Shepard, a point-of-view podcast. So, again, uh, thank you for – we had a very, very good response to the previous one, so hopefully we can build on this uh, as we progress along. Okay, what I want to do uh, today is to look at the post-election, uh, presuming post-Trumpian election, uh, direction of the populist Trumpian conservative uh, Republican Party. Uh, and on July 30th, um, a gentleman, David Azerard, who's a professor, I believe, uh, wrote at the American Conservative, an article, American Conservatism is Fiddling while Rome burns. So he starts with the question, um, what is conservatism in America today? And then he describes it in no-holds-barred terms and commences with, it's hundreds of millions of dollars spent a year fiddling while Rome burns. Its ideas of little to no consequence. It's getting trampled all over by history by yelling stop. Conservatism is the seven cheers for capitalism and the deafening silence on demographic change, feminism, and corporate malfeasance. It's the same tired cast of speakers blathering about limited government almost a century after the New Deal. It's the platitudinous Reagan quotes and the worn-out Buckley anecdotes. It's the mindless optimism and the childish exhortations. If something can't go on forever, it won't. The worn out Buckley Buckley anecdotes uh, is um, David Brooks um, in uh, a few words in that case. Uh, Conservatism is also the endless wars, the nation building, and the outdated alliances, dated alliances. It's the free trade fetish. It's the foolish libertarianism that hates the government more than it loves America. It's the unconscionable refusal to clamp down on immigration. Worst of all, Conservatism is the cowardice and accommodation in the face of leftist hege- hegemony. It's the faux grandstanding while living in fear of being called uh, racist. Well, that is certainly uh, no holds barred, but I can't find anything there, frankly, to, uh, to um, disagree with. And then he goes on, uh, basically asks if there's any viability in the walking zombie that is uh, classical conservatism, and says, on the off chance that the conservative agenda were to be implemented, would it lead to any fundamental change? And across the board, the answer is resoundingly no. Conservatism must overhaul itself. It should be left to die with the passage of time if it doesn't. And a new right in any case is already overtaken. So then he takes a look um, through a window darkly at who the new rightists are. And the new right, which yet has no name, is decidedly unconservative in its temperament. It is spirited, manly, if you can say that in this day and age, and combative. We want to return to the places of honor the Republicans' beliefs, cultural norms, and moral values were raised with. The new right understands not just ideas, but power. Then he makes a stab at outlining an agenda and he says universities in particular must be brought to heel and who can disagree with that and the right must be comfortable wielding the levers of state power and should emulate the left in using them to reward friends and punish enemies within the confines of the law. Ours is obviously a non-libertarian right. Ours is primarily a conservatism of Countries and borders, citizens and families, none of which can take root in the barren libertarian soil of atomized individuals and global, global markets. And then and we're coming to a conclusion, uh, some clarity. As for our priorities, they are clear. We must confront the great threats of our time unsustainable immigration levels and rapid demographic change, cratering fertility rates and collapsing families the corrosive acids of neoliberalism and identity politics in all their manifestations, from text censorship to racial preferences, pathological white guilt, a political system largely unmoored from the consent of the governed, fiscal irresponsibility, and the emasculation of men through feminized education and various forms of soma that sap spiritedness, in particular pornography. In short, the entirety of the ruling classes' ideology must be discredited. And he concludes we must develop policies commensurate with these problems, identify plausible ways to implement them in a hospital environment. And unless we succeed, we will eventually be reduced to second class citizenship in a declining country whose only solace will be the distant memory of former greatness. Now, what he has um, encapsulated is the the thinking, but unstated, of the people who voted for Trump uh, in the main in 2106, um, there was a inchoate anger uh, and resentment against the, uh, the state, uh, against D.C., against the bi-coastal elite, which dumped uh, all their, uh, their stuff on the working people, particularly in the Midwest, um, for many, many years. Now, unfortunately, and perhaps it would be unfair to expect a set of policies to follow on from such a cannonade, um, and perhaps uh, they may eventuate, but we can now, I believe, try and look at some actual policies that might fit within the parameters set out by uh, Professor Azerard. Now, uh, I want to introduce uh, Joseph Cotto of the Cotto Godfried uh, webcast, who's been waiting uh, patiently to dialogue on this important subject. Joseph, I wrote on my blog uh, a point of view, the need for a policy outline and dialogue to uh, commence that uh, that points to a populist Trumpian conservatism that has taken over the GOP. And I set out some of my ideas, um, and I asked you to uh, take a look at them and dialogue with, with me with the points that I, uh, that I raised. And again, they're my points. Um, they're a description and not necessarily a prescription. But I think we have to start somewhere because it behooves uh, us in the uh, conservative, um, the new conservatism to lay a base uh, for the party going forward because I don't believe it actually actually has one. So again, in my uh, point of view, I've published a post-Trump Republican Populist Party manifesto. You've had a chance to uh, to look at it, and I hope you're not too unkind to me, but maybe if you look at point one, and we'll go through how many we've we got here. We've got ten. Uh, and uh, if we go through them one by one, if you want to read out number one, and uh, let me know your thoughts, and then I'll tell you where you've gone wrong or even admit that I may be wrong, although that's never happened. So uh, we'll see where we go. <laughs> so, again, welcome. Thank you for your... Uh, Having me on your your podcast, which uh, which I enjoyed tremendously, and I'll look forward to uh, on your video to uh, to doing it again. So, uh, welcome, and can I uh, leave it to you to uh, to start on uh, on where we are on on the ideas that I set out.
1: Well, sure, I'll, I'll address uh, some of the stuff you put out there in a minute, uh, Mike, but thank you, obviously, for having me here. It's always good to speak with you. I would say, I guess, just about the American Conservative article, that it does remind me of something interesting that happened uh, last year. There was a uh, an intense dialogue between David French, who is a never-Trumper that came out of the sort of... Uh, weekly standard school if you will of american conservatism that's quite unpopular yep. nowadays as we both well know and uh I, I think that uh i i think that he had a point about classical liberalism being the essentially the essence of american conservatism the problem is that uh french is a horrendous horrendous a standard bearer of, of any sort of classical liberal agenda. He's uh, thoroughly awful at it. And then on um, the, uh, I suppose the counterweight to him was this fellow named whose name I could hardly ever pronounce. Uh, so Rob Amari, I believe that's it. And he works at the New York post. I think he's the head of their editorial board or something like their editor or whatever. Uh, but he believes is sort of like a throne and altar, uh, version of 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 nationalism essentially and uh french and amari had a debate over this and uh to make a long story short what came away was the idea that that um there was a draw between the two and i found this especially interesting and i find it still interesting today because of you know this article that you brought up from azerod and it's really the same thing, although is it really the same thing? It's the same thing because you have two different visions of American conservatism, and they have, you know, their own, I suppose, benefits and drawbacks. But at the same time, I don't know that there would be a real alternative to what French brings up in a, in a concrete sense, because I don't think the American populace would really go for it, especially not a lot of people now who are attracted to the American right. So at the same time, though, you can't be a David French uh, in terms of promoting this because he is uh, a total never Trump sellout, essentially, presuming he ever sold anything out to begin with. It might be being too charitable toward him. I think he yeah. really... Could just be, you know, uh, he stands for absolutely nothing, but he uses the classical liberal line. Maybe that's the best way of putting it. But uh, and this would make him even worse, uh, an even worse standard bearer of classical liberalism. So looking at what might come out of this, you know, uh, GOP establishment, which he personifies the pre-Trump, the the pre-Trump establishment. I don't really think that um, that. the uh, most people across the country would go for like, you know, the throne and altar, ultra religious thing. I think that it's going to have to be some form of essentially a classically liberal ideal that is turned into populism and made relevant to a critical number of, of, of people. And I think that's definitely doable. I think that's basically what Donald Trump has done. So that means no, you know, libertarian free market economics but at the same time, no, you know, essentially theocracy. <laughs> so it's it, it's a balance that has to be walked, but I think it's going to be the balance which the GOP is going to have to walk during the years ahead if it wants to have any chance of success. Before I get to your stuff, uh, uh, Mike, I'm sure you have some critiques of some stuff that I just said, so please go ahead.
0: Uh, no, it's uh, very little to disagree with, if, if anything, there. Um, you know, speaking of David Brooks, um, I remember him on election nights saying, uh, My entire family, I'm getting uh, tweets uh, uh, and messages there. My entire family is totally distraught at uh, Trump uh, being uh, being elected tonight. But he's, he stated that um, his belief is the Buckley uh, incrementalism conservatism. Um, well, whether you increment, uh, to the uh, gallows or you go very quickly or very slowly <laughs> you're still going to the gallows so yeah. uh, and uh, azerard again talking about uh, you know uh, a masculine fight that's all there is there is no incrementalism you either stand up for what you believe and if you believe that the conservative policies you espouse are correct then you you don't increment them you uh, you fight for them and if the force of change overwhelms you well then, so be it. Then you go back to the barricades, and you start, uh, you know, fighting from from that point there. But you don't give an inch, and unfortunately, the conservative uh, movement is given more than an inch. They've given uh, uh, mile by mile. So no, that's ab- absolutely correct, and uh, um, we have to. The other thing, again, I agree with you about the relig- religious right. Um, the religious right. Um, their support is hugely important and they want the supreme court to uphold the traditional values and that's great and and if they want to keep supporting as a as a, a an arm of the or in the big tent of the progressive conservatism there's a wonderful place for them because they uphold the the traditional um, judeo christian values which the whole nation was was founded on and there's nothing wrong with them, and I believe there's a voice there. Whether um, some of the opinions they hold uh, for society uh, will be valid going forward is another matter, but if they want to fight for them, then they should, again, fight against um, incrementalism, and I'll fully support them uh, on that basis. The other thing, when you may have seen, uh, I showed a, a, a poll which asked people what their number one concerns were and i couldn't believe it but number 10 was covid which was 2% but number one 84% was the economy so whatever uh, we uh, pontificate here uh, at the end of the day it's about people's quality of life and the the how we run the economy under populist con- populist conservatism will be the be all and end all and the mark of success or failure uh, for for the movement. So that and David Carville, bless his soul, is absolutely correct. It's 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 the economy stupid, and then everything else can flow from there. You have a full belly, then you can worry about uh, what's going on in society. So we must do that. And I think that's why uh, you know pre-COVID, when Black and Hispanic unemployment was at world record at American record levels, um, that was where the success was pointing to. And uh, I think that once we get past COVID, uh, that's where we'll go go again. So the future for the Republican Party under populist conservatism post-COVID is extremely bright, but we have to lay a uh, an intellectual uh, foundation for it that people can fall back on. So that being said, uh, again, you're more than welcome to uh, critique um, and uh, Joseph Shepard's uh, prescription, <laughs> ten point prescription, starting with um, with number one.
1: Yes, I, I, I have' it before me. Number one is redistributive taxation on the mega rich whose wealth amassment has reached a point unparalleled in history uh, and beyond and previously hands held hands off private fortunes thinking. I think I'm not a fan of income taxation as a rule. I think it stifles innovation and uh, in many cases it actually incentivizes people not being productive. I think that at what would be most effective is actually trust busting, uh some sort of old school Teddy Roosevelt style antitrust uh, actions from the Department of Justice. I think that would be better than redistributive taxation. That being said, I do favor federal taxes all the same. I favor taxes on actual wealth, meaning that it would be a tax, an annual tax, like on a bank balance, on securities, and on commercial real estate and it would all be tied together and there would be no way to flood that because you wouldn't even file a return the federal government would know because of uh what's in your bank account your bank would tell them uh what property commercial property you own because your local uh, uh tax collector would would tell them and you obviously have to have the property appraised every year uh and then also for uh uh, for heaven's sake! I, for, oh, yeah, securities. <laughs> Those are all traceable nowadays. There's no such thing in the U.S. as a as bearer as bearer shares. So you know, all the shares are made out to someone, uh, all this stuff is traceable. Uh, and I think it's almost foolproof to tax this because you really can't cheat on it. So I think that would be a good way of federal taxation just without the income tax uh, element that we presently have. Uh, but the people who are still very wealthy would still get taxed obviously. <laughs> and uh, if you were to curtail their influence like uh, using Amazon as an example, if that were to be busted up by the Department of Justice, I think that it definitely would go toward creating a better society. And uh, I think it would create more opportunity for people in the long run because there'd be more competition within the economy. Also, I would favor... some sort of legislation to make it impossible for people like Bezos, who runs Amazon, to uh, own the Washington Post. I think that's very dangerous stuff. I I think, I don't know how the legislation would be enacted or drafted, but I think it is necessary at this point. So that's my take there on point number one. Uh, Mike, I'm sure you have quite a bit of critiquing of my critique, so please go ahead. (laughs) Uh,
0: No, um, I I would hesitate about a bit bit about Um, determining who can own what, because uh, let's say if Bezos was uh, a a hugely uh, Trump-supporting person, uh, we might be holding a different uh, conversation. And it's a slippery slope on that. But look, I think we reached a point in history where there's never been people who have amassed so few, it's almost Marxian, frankly, in its uh, concept, who have amassed such fortunes beyond... Uh, King Midas and Mm -hmm. if we taxed extra on Bezos and Soros and and their ilk uh, and Gates um, it wouldn't and you distribute it across America you'd probably put a few dollars in everyone's uh, pocket but the point I'm making I think is that it's it's important to have a visual um, showing of what you believe and if that was done, I think the people who are on low incomes would see that the Republican Party is totally divorced from the country club uh, situation, and the concept of taxation on on the rich uh, is not some uh, thing which is uh, cast in iron. So, for the few people who are in, in that extra extra, they'll be trillionaires eventually, uh, and which is you know nobody needs anywhere near that money. So, if some example was was made. That would um, reflect better on the Republican Party and show the the new working class uh, support, base support, that uh, we are a party of equality for everybody. Uh, I think that would be would be would be useful. So not reduce, I'm not want to redistribute from millionaires or multi millionaires, but when you get into multi billionaires, I think there's an image problem, and I think we have to address that if we're perceived as this new big tent party of the lower income people so uh, it's it's more from that's point of view rather than uh, some we're going to you know soak the rich because you can't really it would be uh, you know work out to very little uh, in that case so it, we we meet I think uh, somewhere in the middle on that and uh, so thank you for that so you haven't dismissed it so that's uh, that's a big bonus for me thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. And before I move on to number two, I'll just say that I think that actually uh, pursuing antitrust cases, the DOJ against various uh, uh, conglomerates, that would be even more effective than uh, high income taxation. And it would prevent these trillionaires actually, or they're not trillionaires yet, but they very well, very well may be, as you mentioned, it would prevent these people from becoming trillionaires because uh, the (laughs) the manner in which they now make money would become unlawful. So it pretty much achieves what I propose, what you propose, achieves the same thing. Uh, I just think that whatever feeds into the income tax system, whatever perpetuates it, whatever makes it uh, more legitimate in the eyes of people and legislators is generally a, a bad thing. But there are... Uh, there are many ways to. I won't say there are many ways to skin the cat. I hate that saying; it's disgusting. But there are there are many ways to get the job done. I'm uh, moving on to number two: uh, total earnings equality between men and women. Uh, would this be in the government? That could be achieved in the government. Uh, if in terms of people being paid an equal annual salary, if it's hourly wages though, that's difficult because if the man doesn't work as much as the woman or vice versa. There's always going to be some level of uh, of uh, uh, of inequity there, which is not a bad thing. Uh, people should be paid whatever it is that they uh, that they deserve, whatever they work to attain, essentially. Uh, and for the private sector, I don't think that's tenable. I, I can't see how that would be how it would work or how it would be enforced, I can see a huge federal bureaucracy then going into every business, including small ones, and claiming that you're discriminating and then bringing small business owners up on charges, and it would be a nightmare for doing business in this country. So uh, I I guess explain what you mean by that, Mike.
0: Right, well basically where there's a position uh, and a man or woman uh, apply for it and the woman gets it then, of course, she should be paid whatever uh, the man was going to be paid. That, that's without doubt, basically. But no, uh, to answer your second part, yes, there is absolutely a, a way of doing it. Um, some governments have set up, in the British Commonwealth, have set up a, a government body which looks at a job which a, a woman is doing, and then they look at the equivalent job because it wouldn't be <clears throat> necessarily the same job that a man is doing because it could be a service job which is overwhelmingly female but they look at a job which is equivalent which is done by men and then they look at the salaries and they say see if there's a large disparity which there always is i believe then they will work out um, a, a fairer rate uh, for women who are in that particular industry so it can be done uh, fairly and equitably and again, it's a matter of appearances. I think if such a commission was even mooted, I think, again, you would find um, working people, particularly women, who appear at the moment to be a, uh, a bit of a, a, a challenge for, uh, for the Republicans, would look at that and say, well, yes, they're trying to, uh, trying to make our lives better. So yes, there is a mechanism. It has worked, and it does work, and it is uh, very, very effective where it's been put into practice.
1: So would it be essentially that if, a, uh, if two people get hired for the same job, but the man makes more than the woman, I guess, because of overtime, how would that factor into it? Uh, is there anything from the Commonwealth that I guess speaks to that example?
0: Uh, no, there isn't. Um, I don't know how one would address that. But um, I think the, the other aspect is uh, equivalency, uh, job equivalency would make that sort of like a secondary thing which other people with better brains than I could look at in the future. But equivalency is very, very fair. It makes a lot of sense to me. and um, women who because they have tended to be in the service industry, uh, have always been lower paid than men for doing the equivalent work. So uh, I think that's something which can be uh, can be considered uh, as we uh, uh, you know progress forward on this.
1: And number three, state and federal elective bodies to have a 50-50 male-female split. Uh, I I have nothing against the the split uh, in theory or in practice. The question is, if people decide to elect men instead of women, does this mean then that the men who are elected would be uh, refused to, they wouldn't be sworn in and there would have to be a a special election or a by-election until uh, women are elected? How would that work?
0: Uh, no, it's um, first of all this is the the norm in uh, Sweden. I believe that uh, that elective bodies have to. no, it's quite simple that the the political parties would have to ensure that their their candidates um, go through the primaries. That this the balance of uh, uh, would move towards that. So uh, if this Democratic Party or Republican Party has got sixty forty, well, when they put up primaries, they have to. Uh, the local state um, under the governance of the RNC or DNC would have to advise, say, Montana or, well, that's only got one, <laughs> but uh, say California, that uh, they have, there's an imbalance. And when the primaries come, you only have women in this particular one, or only men, until we reach the 50 50 parity. Um, I'm an ardent feminist, as you can probably work out. And uh, I think that uh, apart from some women, um, they're, uh, they're, at least the same, in some cases, if not better than men, but that's wrong to take that to a further degree. So, um, yes, it can be done. It can be done through the mechanisms of the political parties themselves. And it would be on a voluntary basis, but I would hope that the ethos uh, with the Republican Party in the lead would lead that to become the norm over time. I don't want the state to, to dictate that, but I would wish that the political parties, particularly the populist conservative Republican Party, would take the lead uh, in that direction.
1: I think it's excellent to have a goals system. I uh, I agree that the Republican Party needs to, as long as it's not the government mandating this, but I, I agree that the Republican Party does need to have a uh, and it's having this now by the way but it should have been done a while ago it's almost too little too late but it's not entirely too late i don't want to be too uh too uh, fatalistic here but it does need to have a much bigger influence on recruiting females for uh for uh various offices whether it's the county council or you know the city council or congress or of course state legislatures yeah it has to yeah. be done and to have a goal in mind of 50-50 is very good, as long as it's a goal. Uh, obviously, each state party has its own mechanisms and it has its own unique state laws to comply with uh, when it comes to you know whether or not it can endorse candidates. But it would not hurt at all to have somebody like, you know, the Trump family or uh, it pretty much would just be the Trump family at this point, have a goal system to endorse, uh, you know, half half of all candidates it supports being women in any given election cycle. And uh, if a state party can, can do the same, that would be the same deal. Uh, definitely, I think it's good to have a goal system and uh, there does need to be, obviously, more female representation within the GOP. Uh, it's It's gone on quite a while now without, I think, adequate female representation. And if it continues down that road, I think you and I could both agree that there's going to be Uh, more and more problems Uh, right now the GOP does have problems specifically with college educated white women very substantial problems and uh, a lot of these women I think are just totally indoctrinated into leftism so on so forth and unfortunately they kind of develop an attitude of hating men that goes alongside that (laughs) but there are other women who are not like this uh, and they're sort of politically apathetic or they lean slightly right or only slightly left. And I think having more female representation in the GOP would be a good way of making them feel that they have a, a home and a voice within the Republican Party rather than just you know, seeing men doing X, Y, and Z all the time there.
0: Yes, absolutely. This goes back to Ezraard's uh, comment that uh, basically we should blow up the universities. <laughs> um, I don't know if we go quite that far. There's some universities. <laughs> Which are probably okay, but they must be brought to heel. I don't know how that's going to going to happen, but uh, a start must be made there. Anyway, that wasn't one of my ten points, but I'm sure you could uh, you wouldn't disagree with uh, too much with that one as well.
1: Defunding them is the best way to go, I think, <laughs> uh, definitely. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's a bad situation with universities. Uh, to, it's way too complicated to get into here, but a very bad situation. Women are disproportionately uh, affected by this uh, god-awful state of affairs. It is really bad, and that can't be understated. Uh, number four, as part, uh, as part of care and rehabilitation, uh, and implemented only within these parameters, Drugs are to be decriminalized. Absolutely correct. Uh, you, you and I both know very well about the uh, war on drugs. It was bipartisan, but the GOP typically traditionally took a bigger yeah. uh, <laughs> lead, or that wouldn't be the right way to put it. It, it took a uh, a stronger directive, I would say. In uh, continuing the war on drugs. And it has caused the party a lot of problems in the long run. It, in the short run, it was actually very good for the GOP because especially in the 80s and the late 70s, people, you know, seeing, uh, Well crack the that was in the eighties, but in the late seventies there was a lot of, you know, pill popping, all that stuff, and it was freaking a lot of people out. So these draconian laws that are still in place now to a certain extent, some have been repealed, hopefully more will be, they seemed to make sense at the time. But what it produced was a very easy way to get a uh, felonious record that would completely destroy your uh, your ability to attain gainful employment unless you started your own business. And of course, then if people discover you're a convicted felon, good luck getting clients. So it's, it's uh, it, yeah, the, the, the war on drugs uh, has to end, uh, period. There's no two ways about that. And I think that within certain parameters, and as you say, as part of care and rehabilitation, uh, drugs should be decriminalized. You know There are some people out there on the right today who are still opposed to marijuana being legalized. They want to see the DEA raiding pot farms. And I'm not quite sure what, you know, if these people, how much they want to lose by. Is it 20 points or 30 points? But uh, certainly it's something like that. Uh, And there's not much point in talking to them. And I really do think that uh, total drug decriminalization under the auspices of a program that provides care and rehabilitation uh, is Mm -hmm. the way so I don't think there's any two ways about that.
0: No, I describe myself uh, in my uh, uh, avatar as uh, slightly libertarian, and this is the uh, uh, one Milton Friedmanist uh, thing that I, that I have. Look, if somebody's on heroin or, or mess, um, this is a an addiction, and they are they're sick. It, it is a, a mental problem. A society problem, uh, and in reward, only people who rewards are the drug dealers. And in England, uh, for decades, um, they've had uh, drug stores where I think it was at midnight uh, you could go in there. And if you were a registered heroin user, then you got your heroin as part of uh, uh, because it's better to do that than have to rob and steal to uh, to try and get your your fix. Uh, it's a mental health and a physical health and a societal health uh, problem, and it can't be done by law enforcement. Well, it's impossible, as, as we've seen, and the drug cartels are the ones who probably most support the current situation because uh, they've made uh, made a, a fortune out of, uh, out of the lives of people. You know, people want to smoke pot and get themselves stupefied. It's not much different from alcohol, frankly, um, and we gave up on prohibition uh, a long time back, so... Uh, I'm neither here nor there on that. On that, I don't do it. Uh, but if people do, well, you know that that's their 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 choice. But I don't think anybody has a choice of want to be addicted to myths and have their teeth fall out and and exactly. and rob rob people. So um, I don't know why uh, the political parties are so standoffish on this. They they decriminalized it in Portugal, and I think the 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 uh, crime rate dropped dramatically, and and also the addiction rate uh, dropped because, of, for some people, it was believe it or not, was glamorous to, uh, to uh, you know, to be a, on heroin and whatever, and all that went out the window once they once they decriminalized it. So it, it has worked, uh, although the um, anti-drug people will uh, argue with me, uh, but it has worked, and it is of the two, uh, you know, the current situation or within the bounds of rehabilitation and. Uh, and care. Uh, I, I, of the two, I, I can only believe that uh, rehabilitation, care, and decriminalization is uh, the way to go. So uh, that's good. We seem to be in agreement on that. So we're doing very well at the moment, I think
1: absolutely and and I agree uh, you know taking the punitive approach is not good uh you know it leads a lot of people to actually commit crimes that are not related to drug use because they can't get a decent job once they're out of jail and yeah. it's it's, uh, it's it's a total nightmare and there's nothing i think friendly toward the interests of the individual when it comes to this stuff of uh, the present you know the, the keeping uh drugs criminalized illegal drugs criminalized I myself do not use illicit drugs but if somebody else does, as long as they're not behind the wheel of a car, I really, you know, it's, it's not a big deal to me. Of course, if they are behind the wheel of the car, I do expect them to get arrested and prosecuted. But that isn't because of really uh, looking down them using the drug, it's because they're it's like somebody being inebriated on, you know, alcohol. They, they yeah. it's just, it, it's, a, it's an inexcusable risk that you take that can kill somebody else. Uh, now, uh, number five. Uh, marriage before you, i should
0: just stop you uh, before you start, uh, number five. Actually, just jumping back one second. You've got, uh, um, you know, fetal symbols, fetal situations with people who are on those sort of drugs. They're not only killing themselves, but they're also possibly killing their unborn child or destroying their mental capacity. So that's just nothing. So before we go on to number five, uh, which will be on states' rights, um, states' rights uh, are allowed In respect of um, hanging, I think North Dakota is still shooting and electrocuting and drug killing uh, people, uh, and all governments uh, so far accept that. Totally states' rights, but in respect of the situation we're going to discuss now, uh, it isn't. So if you read uh, number five, we can then go on to, uh, to look at that in the light of. Uh, the dichotomy between actually being able to hang somebody or, or electrocute them and these ones.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to say the least. Uh, number five is marriage and abortion are to be a matter of states rights legislation. Personally, I favor only civil unions and domestic partnerships being uh, doled out by the state. I think otherwise uh, holy matrimony is for any religion to deal with on its own basis and the government should not get involved as a matter of religious liberty in whatever any religious definition of marriage is. Uh, I mean, unless it's you know something objectively harmful, if some guy wants to marry his seven-year-olds, I would have a big problem with that, and I would hope the government would as well. But anything between consenting adults in the context of holy matrimony, I have no issue at all with. And uh, I think the state then should just issue a civil union, or if you want a lesser you bond union, whatever, with lesser governmental protections than a domestic partnership. Uh, And that would be absolutely a matter of states' rights, how that would be, how these would be determined. There would be no federal standard, totally states' rights. The only place where the federal government would get involved is in the District of Columbia, obviously, because it's run by the federal government. Mm -hmm. But uh, then you have uh, abortion. I am an abortion rights supporter. I think uh, my my stance is that uh, abortion is good for society because of people who get the abortions. Uh, If they were to all have kids, they disproportionately pool from the uh, lowest tier of the socioeconomic strata. And so we would have uh, a lot, a lot more of, uh, of problems that we see in certain parts of the country uh, just completely spreading out to other areas of the country. And we also have issues relative to overpopulation. Uh, I'm also in favor, and I like this better than abortion, as I think some might. Uh, imagine, uh, you know, birth control or voluntary sterilization. uh, But, uh, you know, those are proactive things. Abortion is reactive. It's always better to be proactive than reactive. But uh, with regard to how abortion should be handled, I like it being legal across the country. I really do from a tactical perspective. That being said, if you do have a situation where it's in Utah, you could be, you could be killed by a firing squad that happened a few years ago as that' they'll yeah. <laughs> take uh, and uh, if you have say a situation where you could have a civil union entailing mm-hmm. lesser um, uh, protections in North Dakota than it would in say uh, Colorado uh, I do see the argument then that abortion should also be a matter of similar state by state. Uh, concern. Uh, I, I do like it being legal. I I, I won't lie at the, at the federal level, but I also won't lie in saying that my support for that does not come from any sort of uh, coherent legal theory. It's just a matter of practicality. But uh, certainly the, the, the strongest argument for abortion laws, one way or the other, is on the basis of states' rights, and I would not pretend otherwise.
0: <laughs> no. There's a number of uh, things to cover in this one, which is Oh, it's a very difficult. Firstly, my personal opinion, uh, I'm um, pro-life, but in the case of, uh, of, of rape, um, then um, I, I believe that that's uh, uh, clearly an ex- ex- exemption. I don't believe a woman should uh, be forced to carry a rapist child to, uh, to full term. But where there's uh, no uh, difficulties and there's a, a living uh, human being, uh, then uh, I err more on the side of, uh, of of pro-life there. Jen, I'll take a few steps here. So marriage, uh, you touched on the religiosity. Um, and if you're a Christian, uh, it's very, very simple. Uh, Jesus said uh, he made them male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So uh, there's total, cl- total clarity there. Uh, now, um, I don't care what uh, consenting adults of any gender persuasion, uh, whatever, do in the privacy of their bedroom. But you're quite right. The civil union, there's nothing, I believe, that marriage between same-sex couples gives them, uh, uh, apart from some some group or societal recognition, that civil unions didn't provide. So why they wanted to go a step further uh, is a, a matter of ultra-liberalism. ultra, ultra liberalism. And the point that they made that where there's love, there is, um, you know, this should be allowed. Well, then, that clearly applies to polygamy. In fact, it could be six or ten times more if a, a man or a woman wants to uh, have six or ten um, marriages then there's six or ten times love than there would be between one or two, so the idea of love is uh, is the important reason to have same-sex marriage. Just doesn't carry uh, carry any uh, sense of, at all. I mean, you can apply to bestiality. I love my uh, ring-neck parakeet, uh, and uh, I'm, uh, but uh, I'm not going to uh, want to be married. That's facetious, but it's perfectly logical if if if, if love is the overriding situation then polygamy should be absolutely legalized and there's no argument against it on on on, on, on that basis. Um, so again and also the point you made if the people in New York want 100% same-sex marriage uh, but why should the people say in North Carolina which and even California which people forget voted against it, why should it be forced on them by judicial fiat? Um, Were it Again, it is it is a state's rights issue. If killing people judicially is a perfectly acceptable state's right issue, then uh, marriage uh, and abortion should also be um, uh, state's right issues, uh, in my opinion. Now, um, both of us will probably catch flack on this, um, and uh, but that's fine because it's one of those nearly intractable uh, arguments. But it wasn't intractable 30 years back. No, it wasn't. The world's changed 30 years, but these are fundamental issues, which 30 years difference doesn't make any difference in my opinion.
1: Well, it's interesting. I guess I'll talk about the two things to bring up with marriage slash civil unions and abortion. I guess I'll do abortion first. I'll save the the most important for last, I suppose. Uh, But uh, abortion, from my perspective, any time that the fetus is viable, then uh, given my understanding of human biology, and I'm not, you know, a health professional, but I have actually watched an abortion being performed on, a, uh, on an embryo, just, it, it was uh, uh, it was sort of on the verge of becoming a fetus, it was 12 weeks old, so it would be, I, 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 it would literally depend on whether or not it was 11 weeks old and six days old, or, you know, 12 weeks old one day, but it was it's was, it was basically the same thing, uh, and I have yeah. seen that, and I'm not convinced they could call that murderous, the process, it was live to tape that I saw the abortion. I don't think you could call that a murder. Uh, I don't approach it from a religious perspective at all. It's a matter of uh, humanist bioethics. Uh, then though, if you are talking about after it reaches the stage of fetal viability, that is a very, very uh, uncomfortable area. At that point, I would only say it's acceptable under any reasonable legal system if uh, if the life of the mother is in danger, uh, and I and I favor obviously her getting an abortion for rape, but even that's before fetal viability. You know you're pregnant before the fetus is viable, uh, and uh, so you can't really use that excuse. I know there are some freak cases of some women not knowing they're pregnant until they deliver, but uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I I don't think that's enough to justify really a a rape exemption for a post viability abortion I'm just not seeing it but once the fetus is viable it is able to survive outside of the woman carrying it and so if it is able to do that quite clearly it's alive in and of itself and I don't think you can make a serious bioethical argument then that something which is alive in and of itself but just happens to be within you know uh its mother's uh womb to say that that's any less than you know a living breathing human being on the outside i don't buy that argument at all i don't think it holds water so pre-viability i don't think it's murderous i think it's rather similar to excising a tumor As, as as cold as that sounds it's not intended to be but that's my understanding of the matter bioethically but once it is viable once it is alive in and of itself uh it, it's I, I i only to preserve the mother's life do i see that an abortion after that point is being uh at all legally justifiable so that's my take there and also abortion I, I fully concede even though i support it being legal uh nationally for tactical reasons because i think we'd have an overpopulated mess of the lowest tier of society if there were no legal abortions but uh i i fully admit that the state's rights argument is the most solid of arguments when it comes to abortion and uh my support of a national you know legalization of abortion procedures is purely tactical i can't repeat that enough it is purely tactical i'm not going to try to defend it on some you know uh philosophical premise because i looked at the rationale of the justices who decided roe v wade and much as i like their decision I, I must say that they <laughs> the, 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 the 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 rash the the rationale that they had is not the most convincing uh, to, to say the absolute least. So I do see why a lot of people who are against abortion look at this and say it's an illegitimate ruling. It's definitely not on the strongest of legal footing. Uh, so I'll just, I, I, I will fully concede that and leave that there. Uh, now talking about about marriage I think is of a, a, a greater consequence to society because the family obviously is the fundamental unit of any given society and uh, without that you're not going to have a society uh i think that um uh, i i think that There's no point in the state getting involved with marriage because marriage initially was a religious ceremony that was just then secularized for the purpose of, you know, having some sort of legal recognition of a lifelong union. Uh, I do see why the secularization came about, but I think it was a mistake. Civil unions are marriages by another name. Domestic partnerships are not. They offer less legal protections. There's a big distinction there. And I think that any state should be able to whatever the hell it wants when it comes to civil unions or domestic partnerships, although I would not support a state saying we're not going to give a gay couple a civil union or a domestic partnership. If a state says, you know, we're not getting into marriage, that's perfectly fine. I endorse that, but I think that civil unions and domestic partnerships should be available to everyone irrespective of sexual orientation. However, if a church or a synagogue or a uh, mosque or a temple wants to say, because of our religious beliefs, we are not going to marry you here and uh, we're not going to perform holy matrimony upon you. I do not think that anyone anywhere in the country should be able to sue that religious institution and say, this place is violating my rights. I think that's total horse manure. And I think that this is a very sincere religious liberty issue. And I am 110% opposed to any religious institution being forced to violate its own beliefs by uh, or having some sort of uh, sacrament, as they would call it, being performed that's against their you know their core value system.
0: Absolutely, and also that applies to uh, a master cake baker.
1: Yes, it you know. does. Definitely.
0: <laughs> so I, I think the court's actually ruled positively on that. Uh, mm-hmm. And anyway, I think we can conclude all that section, which is very good, and as said, we'll probably catch fire on all different directions by <laughs> saying the the position of the soon-to-be. Uh, ex-Senator Doug Jones, that uh, abortion should be legal right up to the day before or the day of uh, birth. Uh, that uh, That's probably uh, uh, something we, we can all disagree with, hopefully. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I <of> the situation.
1: <laughs> and yeah. I'll do number six. Yes, number six. United States senators will be subject to the initiative and recall. I support that. There's no – I have no uh, – negative perspective on that i think that initiative and recall is a very healthy thing provided that it has a strong enough uh i would say qualification that it can't just be a bunch of angry people getting together and filing you know 25 petitions and mm-hmm. saying now we're going to recall the u.s senator you should actually get probably about a hundred thousand at least signatures together depending on the size of your state maybe even be more than that but uh, as long as it is a, a serious process that you know just somebody can't initiate by getting their friends together because they hate a politician I do support it
0: yeah when I wrote that the name Murkowski kept running through my <laughs> mind uh, <laughs> for some some reason hundred thousand probably be half the population but uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, no, seriously um, if it's Good enough to do that for governors. Uh, then I see absolutely no reason. Unfortunately, the constitution is silent on it, um, so we'd need a constitutional amendment. Uh, but um, why should they be sacros- sacrosanct uh, when a governor uh, isn't? So, and as you said, obviously uh, not uh, done. Just um, silly, and there has to be a uh, certainly a large number of uh, of uh, petitioners to do that. But uh, that's fine. We we agree with that. So that that's good, and uh, mm-hmm. number seven,
1: worker representation will be instituted on the boards of major corporations. Definitely, I favor employee stock ownership uh, religiously. <laughs> I, I I think that if. Uh, employees have a stake in the company, which they work for, it makes them more likely to be loyal to the company. And it probably increases their productivity by a substantial margin. I think yeah. that a a, a form uh, would support a law stating that there has to be a worker, a worker representative on the board of a major company, maybe even more than one, depending on how board, big the board is, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I yeah. also do think that uh, in time, there should be a law that all major corporations that have say beyond a certain number of shares or beyond a certain net worth they have to have some sort of employee option for ownership uh to some degree uh, of stock so i think also it's a good idea for companies just to give employees (laughs) stock uh without having to go through all this i think it's it's really a a great thing to do not just because you're being nice but because it's a good strategy to get people quite literally invested in your company uh It's, it's uh I think it's a win-win for everyone and I really can't see how uh, I really can't see how anybody sane would be against this
0: right this is so radical that it was brought in what 1920s in Germany it's it goes it must <laughs> be at least a hundred hundred years that that's been and Germany hasn't destroyed the German economy absolutely not Germany uh, beside their silly aggressive wars uh was uh, one of the powerhouses uh, of the world, with that they've always—it's really strange dichotomy—but they've always had a, a very, very strong uh, interactive uh, communication and understanding be- between employer and employee in uh, in uh, Germany. <coughs> and in fact, after World War One, um, the um, it was the foundation of the Weimar Republic. Actually, was the unions and the employers met, I think, secretly. And agreed that they would uh, cooperate to save the uh, the new uh, new republic, which they did until the uh, the, the great uh, great depression. So I can't see how anyone could object to. It. Again, we're not talking about um, uh, by fiat, but if there's a if there are large corporations, uh, it should be a matter of Republican Party policy. And if it doesn't happen, well then uh, it should be. Uh, um, some degree of legislation can come in and everything that i'm bringing up here is is about creating a picture to the broad tent new populist conservative base particularly those who voted for trump because they were disenfranchised uh, job-wise and through uh, their employment being sent overseas and that their traditional attachment to the democratic party uh, wavered at that point and we want to give them a broad picture to say yes uh, we're for you and look at all this stuff that we want to to bring in which is which is uh, for you
1: mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed entirely. Uh, number eight: the cooperative movement will be encouraged and financially supported by government. Uh, I have nothing at all against uh, the cooperative movement or uh, or what you described here, how the government would treat it. I really can't think of anything negative to bring up about it. I think it is uh, perfectly fine.
0: Yep. If we want to grow society in a positive manner. We have to look at things. What are positive for society and for ownership of um, of their work, which would be impossible for um, most people or many people. Uh, there is a there would be an avenue for that if they can find like-minded people who have the same skill set or mentality as they do, and they have an idea and they want to um, want to bring it to fruition within a capitalist framework. We're not talking about uh, um, uh, some far off uh, socialist uh, uh, dream, but, but within the capitalist framework where you have to make make a profit, uh, then the the cooperative movement is another thing which can engender a feeling of self respect in people. And again, we want to make that part of uh, of the uh, popular populist uh, conservatism. That's good. We're doing doing very well. I would. I thought we might have more arguments, but we seem to be on the same mind. Uh, what about number 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 nine? I'll pre- preface that by saying the Whig Party uh, was founded on uh, basically on on tariff protection, and when they became the Republican Party, it was the absolute mainstay right through to the uh, to the Great Depression. So it's it is an integral part of American thinking. But I'll let you read number nine. Uh, and then we can uh, just cover that.
1: Certainly. Tariff protection for American industry will be a standard element of the federal government. I uh, agree with that wholeheartedly. It should absolutely be a, uh, a prime directive of the federal government to do this. I think free trade agreements, generally speaking, are bad ideas, unless there's some sort of Labor parity between two countries, in which case uh, any trade agreement has to be bilateral rather than multilateral. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not uh, it's a terrible idea. Multilateral trade agreements. I think that uh, tariff protection should be something that is paramount for the for the federal government. And I really can't think of any sane argument against it. I think that what you see uh, is that it works very well for the sugar industries. The entire reason that America has a sugar industry because of steep tariffs of foreign sugar. I also think that if you apply that standard to other industries, it'll be very good for uh, for the US. And I think that other countries should do this for their own domestic economies as well. So I think that tariff protection is important to say the least. a lack of tariffs is what destroyed the steel industry and created the Rust Belt, as we now call it, uh, which, yep. Yep, which extends from upstate New York down into Pennsylvania all the way over to uh, Iowa, to eastern Iowa. And uh, that, that didn't used to be called the Rust Belt, but it now is. So uh, the, the reason is because the, the jobs literally were shipped overseas. And now we're also seeing something similar with white-collar working. This doesn't have to do with tariffs, but it's about uh, – offshoring jobs. And uh, I don't know how you put a tariff, though, on the services that IT workers in foreign countries provide, because it is a service. It's not a good. It doesn't have to be imported. So it's it's uh, it's a unique matter. But uh, certainly uh, tariffs are very good for material goods. I don't seem to be able to do it for, for the intangibles like services. But uh, for material goods, I do support it strongly.
0: Yeah, there is one danger that if um, industry becomes or an industry, let's say they make shoes and they're totally protected, there's absolutely nothing stopping their standards uh, dropping and putting uh, and charging as much as they like for an increasingly inferior product. This happens; it's it's indisputable. So um, there has to be some mechanism to ensure that uh, or monitoring to ensure that the standards of quality. Uh, and price, uh, you don't get price gouging for inferior products. So in essence, um, it's historically the basis of the Republican Party, apart from anti-slavery, of course. Um, but it, uh, it has to be very, very carefully monitored. But in, in its essence, uh, it's, um, it's just a question for you. All these um, tariff removals, um, where did that come from? Who, whose ideas were they? to totally have free trade and disenfranchise uh, American steel manufacturing.
1: Believe it or not, it started with Franklin Roosevelt during the New Deal. He wanted to uh, so-called reinvigorate the nation's economy, and he did away with steep tariffs that were imposed by the Republicans who were in power before him, and it sort of stalled a bit. In the 1950s of uh, 1940s and uh, really the 1940s the reason it didn't continue through there is because of the second world war that destroyed essentially every developed economy in the world except the united states uh but uh by the time that the uh 60s rolled around people were beginning to get the idea that uh you could have uh cheaper products with more competition by opening up uh, industries that were provided within the United States to the, uh, to the global marketplace. And that's what happened throughout the 70s and especially in the 80s, uh, a lot of the 80s. I know this was done by both parties. Uh, LBJ yeah. supported it to a certain degree. Uh, Ronald Reagan did, uh, Nixon did, Ford did. Carter did, and it just uh, continued on and on and on. And Clinton, though, Bill Clinton in the 90s, was the most uh, activist on this issue. He was uh, the most dedicated of free traders, and uh, he signed NAFTA, which was the sort of like the apex of free trade, uh, the ultimate expression of free trade thought. And uh, so, yeah, it's a bipartisan matter, but by the time the 2000s rolled around, to make a long story short, you have the rust belt and you had it in the 1980s as well because this really it started back in the 30s But uh, by the 80s, the the, uh, revival of it in the 60s and the 70s had already begun to take its toll, although it would not be nearly as bad as it would become in the 90s. That's when, you know, the the bottom started falling out. By the 2000s, you have this wasteland. And by the 2010s, you have people ready to vote Republican who've always voted Democrat and they supported (laughs) Donald Trump because he ran on a policy of uh, tariff-oriented economic revival, at least in part. Yeah.
0: Yep. deeper than than that which is what you said is absolutely true it's rooted in uh in the liberalist idea that america could raise the standard of living in the third world and underdeveloped countries by allowing all their goods to uh, to come to america and to engender their growth uh, rather than the idea that uh, individual countries should um, their own um, their own self- and then their own understanding of self and what they can do uh, rather than be um, at the charitable basis of american liberalism so it was rooted in a false understanding of how to help third world countries uh, by by letting them put american workers out of work so uh, um, that that's that's where it ended up and uh, and the final result was uh, trump's election in, in two thousand and sixteen uh, and hopefully going forward. And uh, for our suffering listeners, we are on the last point, which carries on from there. Um, But uh, again, I'll let you uh, be kind enough to read it.
1: Sure. Number 10, American manufacturers will be prioritized over foreign manufacture at all levels of government. I agree. There's no reason for the US to uh, award contracts, for instance, to foreign governments or to give them tax breaks and such uh, unless they have a physical uh, presence in the United States. I completely uh, agree with that. And I really don't think there's any reasonable counter perspective to it. And it's yeah. not many things that I go so far to say something like that about.
0: Yeah, that, that's fine. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you for that, uh, Joseph. Now, um, What I would like you to do, if you uh, have any uh, thoughts um, along these lines, is um, those are my 10. Are there anything which um, you feel could be added to that? Um, And of course, we're just starting this, uh, which will be a long drawn out uh, conversation, not on this show, but uh, across um, the Republican Party. But what would you like to add to to that in respect of ideas that uh, you feel might be? part of the trumpian populist conservative uh republican big tent party going forward
1: well i think that generally speaking there should be an influence uh not influence an emphasis on uh opposing political correctness and social justice warfare and woke culture i think that there should be a rolling back of governmental regulations that encourage uh all these things that i just mentioned and there should actually be a commission on uh, looking at which regulations encourage uh, the, the, this nonsense, the commission on wokeness. Uh, and it should be uh, essentially uh, promoted to the public as a form of anti-discrimination because wokeness discriminates against uh, men, against uh, people who maintain the sex into which they were born, uh, discriminates against uh People who have political opinions that are thought to be unfashionable by the powers that be. So I thought I think that uh, look uh, opposing wokeness with a, uh, a, a serious federal government commission that would look at rolling back regulations that encourage wokeness. I think mm-hmm. that would be the best way to go, and it's definitely doable. And I hope that Trump does something like that in the second term.
0: Right, and uh, thank you for that. I can't can't disagree. Um, and. Looking at uh, the political current situation, um, Karen, we have a problem, um, supposedly, with Karen, although I would argue, and it's been argued in front of you by three of your guests, Mm -hmm. that what women are saying to the pollsters does not necessarily reflect what they're going to do in the voting booth. And I think we saw that uh, to a degree in uh, 2016. But in your mind, is there a, a female problem? Um, how much of it is real? And what can be done uh, by, because the time is getting short, uh, to address it uh, for the Republican Party, if it's real?
1: I think that there is obviously a female problem. I think a lot of it is that it's going to be a, an in depth answer. Uh, a lot of women are radicalized against tradition, against uh, anything they believe is male-dominated, and eventually allow them to despise men, period, because they are told throughout their years in education that men are to blame for for your problems. They're told this through, through various theories that are taught in various so-called disciplines. And also the media pumps these ideas into their heads, so that reinforces what they're learning uh, at school. But you know, this would not hold on if these women Had a generally positive view of men from the onset, of males from the onset. I think the fact that you have so many broken families nowadays, you have so many girls who grow up in divorced households where they're almost always raised by the mother, and the mother tells them, you know, just how awful men are because of the divorce, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so this sets the a lot of these girls up, and most households today are are broken they have at least at least one divorce in them at one time or another so you have to take this into consideration i think that this uh premise sets these uh girls up to become women that are sjw woke fanatics i don't think you find very many of these people who come from uh traditional two-parent households unless there are some you know hardcore leftists who just raise them to think this way and i'm sure there are i know there are But I don't think that's the majority of these people uh, either. I I just can't imagine it is given the statistics on divorce. So I I think that uh, that all of this really does set uh, girls up to be... to become women that are uh, politically out there to say the absolute least. A lot of these women, the GOP will never be able to reach because they have an identity now about hating tradition, hating uh, the so-called patriarchy, hating men. And it's stuff that, that, you know, that ship has sailed. There are some though that are not, who have not bought into this nonsense all that much and the GOP can reach them, I would say by, uh, making it apparent to women why it's in their interest to support the Republicans against the Democrats. Anything from freedom of speech to uh, not letting, I don't know, a, a large-scale immigration in that would hurt them economically, so on and so forth. There are lots of different avenues to go here, but obviously each avenue has its own twists and turns, and some of them might be unexpected. So nothing is 100% or guaranteed, but I think this is uh, the general path which the GOP should follow.
0: Yeah, safety and security is another aspect. Uh, You may have seen the article that uh, Upper West Side women in New York are fleeing the area because of violence. Downtown Chicago. I think uh, if the Bush one is 204 based on, I think, women uh, concerned for security. Um, And I think if the security issue, um, uh, if this sort of thing continues, uh, may also uh, challenge uh, some of the women who who you describe uh, quite rightly. The other unfortunate part of that is black women, which is a conundrum. Uh, I think it's never less than 96% of black women uh, vote for uh, for the Democrats, whereas black men will waver a bit, um, maybe because of economics. But that one is maybe for another day, uh, uh, intractable. And uh, it has to be addressed in some manner. Although Governor DeSantis uh, won his election on school choice, basically because of black women um, swinging to him in the last uh, in the last instance. So there are issues which which can uh, can help address that. But again, I think that's an issue for uh, for uh, another day. But uh, women are my concern at the moment. Um, but uh, we'll see what, as I said, that it is. It, it's not unheard of that sometimes what women say and what they do, uh, is, uh, uh can actually happen. So, uh, we, <laughs> in the privacy of the polling booth, they may do something from what they, uh, what they say amongst their peers, but, uh, we'll see how that turns out there. Joseph, um, <clears throat> thank you very much for your, uh, your interaction on that. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's, um, you know, dry bread for a lot of people and, um, I like to, to commence normally my podcast by saying that uh, I'm the voice of uh, calm reason in a uh, in a sea of shouting and hysteria and uh, Twitter nonsense and uh, and people get uh, exercised by the by the Trump is done scandal du jour. But I, I try and take the long term and uh, hopefully with voices like yours on my podcast and others, we'll continue that voice of. Uh, of quiet reason, but this is a, a dry bread uh, conversation to a lot of people, but it has to be done because you can't have a rudderless or, or ship without a sail. And at the moment, the uh, Republican party um, is taking down one set of sails, but it's very tentative about which set it's putting up uh, to replace it. So again, thank you very much for your, uh, your kind interaction. And we'll talk again, if not here, then certainly on, uh, on your uh, your your broadcast, so I'll say goodbye, and I'll, I'll and once you've uh, concluded, I'll just have a quick note to my uh, listeners as well.
1: Absolutely, Mike. Uh, this has been an outstanding conversation. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Needless to say, I look forward to having you back on Cato Gottfried, and uh, obviously, folks find it just by going on YouTube and typing in Cato Gottfried. But uh, yes, yeah, it's been a great conversation, Mike. It absolutely had to happen, as you mentioned, and we covered a lot of ground. And every single bit of the chat was worthwhile.
0: Thank you so much for that. Okay, <laughs> uh, for my for my listeners, uh, just. Uh, remind them that um, as I've said before the support for conservative voices like mine um, and hopefully in, in intellectual or uh, best as I can do it voices is uh, minuscule the the leftists the Voxes and the huffington posts they get massive support and they they get a, a massive audience whereas it's it's challenging for people like myself look I read, your comments that come on the uh, podcast, but I can't reply to them because I have to upgrade to the next level. So with the support that's come in, uh, I've got to this point, which has been tremendously appreciated, and hopefully you can see the value. So look, on my um, Twitter feed, my um, pinned tweet, it has uh, go to M. Joseph Shepard, a point of view. You'll see there's a, a contribution, PayPal button there. And any support that you give, whatever you give, will come back to you because uh, through you, your voice will come through through this uh, mechanism. And for those who have uh, cell phones, you can't pick it up there. You've got to go to the uh, to the web uh, website, uh, or you can scroll right down to the uh, my website on your cell phone, and it has see web view, and then you can do it there. So I, I hate to do this sort of stuff because no challenging for people, but people responded, but we need to develop that more uh, to make this uh, a wider voice. Um, As I said, I'm not trying to build a holiday house in Bermuda. Everything that comes in goes straight into trying to develop this as well. So again, thank you all for listening. And uh, again, thanks, Joseph uh, Cotto, for his uh, really stimulating, interesting conversation. Take care.